Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Edon Golan, owner and manager of Edon Golan Diamond Research and Data and managing partner of Tenoris. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How are you doing? I'm okay, hanging in, you know, it's uh, been a crazy week, but... um... You're going to Istanbul, correct? I am. Well, and I should say we're recording this in on October 10th. So those of you who are listening, you know, this is going to be a couple weeks old by the time you hear us just due to some travel schedules, including my own. I, and I am going to Istanbul. I'm actually going to visit the new Peninsula Hotel on the banks of the Bosporus, which sounds delightful. So I'm taking some PTO days to do that. But I'm also going to try to see some jewelers, including Sivan, Sivan Bichakchi, who many of you will know is this incredibly talented Armenian jeweler who's based near the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. I'm going to try to see Ada Bergson, another Istanbul-based jeweler. So, you know, I'll do my best to touch base with those designers that are really sort of the arbiters of contemporary Turkish jewelry style. I'll be very close to a region that's, you know, we're going to discuss further today, but I'll be very, I'll be closer, much closer to a region that's at war at the moment. So, you know, I feel like whenever you travel closer to that part of the world, you're much more inundated with news and imagery. Not that we have inundated with news and imagery here of what's happening in Israel and in Gaza. Our guest today just so happens we'd actually invited him to join us well before we understood that there would be a crisis happening in that part of the world. But Edan Golan is a longtime diamond industry analyst. Both Rob and I have known him. We just figured this out before we started recording about 20 years. Uh, he worked with IDEX online group for quite some time. I think that's when we met. And Edan is calling in today from the city of Netanya, which is about, let's see, how many miles north of Tel Aviv are you, Edan? About 20. About 20. And also closer to some other borders. Well, tell us exactly where you are uh, in relation to what's happening in the fighting. So the highlight is that I'm about 15 minutes away from the beach. That's <laughs> the important the part. Everything's closed, correct? The streets are kind of deserted. So there's kind of this um, eerie feeling in the air, even though where I'm based, I'm kind of outside of the firing range. I'm not exposed to the dangers that come with war. At least, <laughs> at least not I'm doing recording time. By the time this is a broadcast, who knows? Let's, but let's hope. No, we certainly hope. Yes. Yes, we're looking at a at a um, constant sirens in everything from the very south of Israel to a little bit north of Tel Aviv. So I'm sort of an extra step beyond that. The first couple of days were really tense because of the uncertainty and devastating to the country, to the people. I mean, we're talking already in in the thousands of people dead, which is unheard of. I mean, the whole 73 war was, I don't know, 4,000 people were killed. We're already at 1,000. I mean, this is just two days. That war went on for 18 days. So it's difficult to digest. Psychologically, it's difficult for many people. My kids just don't know what to do with themselves. Oh. Well, Iran, thank you for making time to talk to us during what obviously is an extremely tense 
tense moment in Israel. We're conscious of the fact that we asked you on to talk about the diamond industry. And even though some of those questions feel less relevant when something as big as war is happening, I think our, our listeners will probably be keen to get some of your takes on what's happening at retail. And perhaps it's it's a good distraction for you just to think about your normal line of work, which is studying this diamond business. Before we even jump in, you know, we joked a little bit about you, you having this very typically Israeli name, Idan Golan, and yet you speak with such a wonderful American accent. Tell us about your background. Where are you from and how'd you get to the jewelry industry? <laughs> what odd turn did I take along the way? Yeah. I was born to Israeli parents who lived in LA, uh, were there to, as students. They, they, uh, my father went to UCLA and my mother went to a uh, sort of uh, education, child, children education school. So I was born in LA. I'm a native Californian. And then when I was about uh, seven years old, the family moved back to Israel. For me, it was, uh, you know, I, I immigrated. Then uh, in my early 20s, I moved back to the United States and actually attended college and spent about uh, seven eight years in the United States as a sort of a second stint there before moving back to Israel. So here's how did I get into the diamond industry? I, I actually started in broadcasting. I was a TV director, Californian, right? <laughs> and uh, at some point, I figured that it's not that interesting and I want to, it's not what I expected it to be. I won't be a National Geographic, um, you know, documentarist. And all along the way, you know, I, I found myself doing a lot of different things. I I taught myself economy and I taught myself programming. And when I bought my first computer, it didn't work. So I had to dismantle it and put it back together. And I learned how computers work. And I did a lot of stuff. So I did a lot of news and I did a lot of technical stuff. And at some point I was doing this one project and I saw that it's about to end. It was, I don't know, two months, I don't know, two months left on finishing up that project. And I decided I'll just start to tell friends that I'll be available soon for work. And if they hear anything, uh... and one of these friends is a guy that did brand for what would be later Idex Online. And he said, ah, you're exactly what they need. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know anything about diamonds. I mean, it's like, no, 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 no. You know everything that they need because they know diamonds. Don't worry about the diamonds part. So I was brought, I joined Idex in February of 2001, just a couple of weeks before they launched. What I did there is I created, I built the news section to this trading platform. And not too long after that, uh, we bought uh, what was then uh, Mazalu Bracha magazine, uh, which used to belong to Jaime Vizor, our uh, legendary diamond industry analyst. And uh, because IDEX collects a lot of data as part of its platform, I found myself very quickly doing a lot of you know analysis of prices, and I knew everybody in the industry because you know that's what you do as a news guy, as you both know very well. And after the crash in 2008, we were approached to do some industry analysis because you know people, companies, large companies, smart companies were looking for sort of insights of where the opportunities are, and they turned to IDEX, uh, I guess among others. But I found it fascinating at that time to do those kind of in-depth analysis, you know, just hit me at that time that I'm sitting on a treasure trove of data. And if you understand the industry, you know, you can look at this data and put it in context and you create something new. And it was marvelous. I was just fascinated by it to the point 
at some point in, in uh, a couple of years later, I said, Tidex, look, you know, I don't care if you demote me. Bring somebody else to be, you know, hold the title that I'm holding today. I just want to do analysis. I don't care for anything else. And that kind of transpired to the point where literally that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do news anymore. It sort of got boring. So I left IDEX in 2013 after 12 years and formed uh, my research company that uh, kind of did just what I described, you know, take data and put it in context because knowing that the price of a diamond is, is going up or down is meaningless unless you put it in context. You got to explain why and what does it mean and what can you do with that? And, you know, does it impact my business? How does it impact my business? You know, those are the questions that, you know, business usually tries to resolve, tries to answer. Yeah, and I I get the the free newsletter, which is excellent, and I recommend. I think it's Tenoris.bi, correct? Yes, yes. So I recommend everyone get this. And one of the things that I would guess I could say you made news with it, or you certainly caused a lot of discussion in the trade, is when you found that fifty percent of loose stones in the United States going for engagement rings were lab grown. And some people have perhaps interpolated more than you meant. So do you want to kind of talk about that statistic and what it means? Uh, sure. At some point, one of the things that we found was that it's good that we're providing data, but there are some companies that actually want us to provide them with some sort of analysis. And uh, as a way to sort of show our clients how they can do that, what I did was I said, okay, let's try to do a little forecasting because one of the questions that everybody's asked, so, you know, what's going to happen with lab growth? So... Just to put this in context, jewelry retailers, specialty jewelers in the United States don't only buy jewelry, finished jewelry, but they also buy components. One of the components they buy is loose gems, primarily diamonds, but other gems as well. And because of that, we can track the diamond, the loose diamond activity that those jewelry retailers the performance at, at these stores, right? So that's the intro. What I did was is I took loose diamonds as a universe. I looked at natural diamonds and uh, lab-grown diamonds and just looked at the trend of units sold, how many diamonds are being sold, and uh, try to do a little projection and see at what point will we cross that point where it's 50-50. And I came up with this prediction. It'll come out, it will happen in June and eventually happen in July. But... <laughs> I was off by a few days, 30 days. So this is what we found out. We found out that if you look at the loose sales at jewelry retailers in the United States, today, 50% of their loose sales are lab grown by units, right? Number of stones sold. And is that by engagement rings or in general? So the question is, what do they use loose diamonds for? Primarily for engagement rings. Uh, following that, it's stud earrings for some reason. I don't know why you have to set stud earrings at the store, but stud earrings is, is the second. And it's really a subcategory of earrings. But if you look at it, you look at size, you look at average expenditure per stone, etc. These are bigger stones. So let's say I walked into a store and I said, my budget, you know, you walk into a store and the, and the salesperson asks you, you know, what are you looking for? I'm looking for an engagement ring. Okay. What's your budget? $3,600, $35. Okay. Let me show you a bunch of designs. And what happens is that often consumers in that discussion with, with retailers, with the sales staff, pick out a design, not a stone. I want, you know, a halo or I want, a, you know, two stones or, you know, this kind of design, that kind of design. Once they pick out a 
what is referred to in the industry as a semi-mount, which is a ring without the center stone, then the rest of the budget goes to the stone. So the semi-mount is about, say, $1,000. Now they have $2,500, $2,600 to spend on a stone. And then they'll pick a stone to their liking within that budget. By the way, the question up until now often was, is it cannibalizing the market or is it expanding the market? And the answer is yes, it's doing both things, both this and this. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond chairs with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. And we're starting to hear some jewelers, not a lot, but some starting to talk about perhaps it might be better for their business to go back to natural diamonds. Are, are you starting to yes. see that or hear yes, that? Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you where I heard it first. It's kind of an interesting trend. I started to hear this this past June at the JCK show in Vegas. You probably remember that up until 2016, when you asked the jeweler, will they add lab ground to their offerings? The answer was no. And the reasoning was simple. I am a sort of a high-end or exclusive or luxury retailer, and I won't add synthetics to my offerings. 2018, that tune changed. In 2018, retailers started to say, I will go where my customer wants me to go. So so, so now the trend that we're seeing and started to see in, in June was it's kind of hurting my business. And, and when you ask them why, there were two primary answers. One said it lowered my average transaction value. So those that kind of jumped in the bandwagon because it was a faster sale, you know, goods moved faster, my cash flow was nicer, found themselves in a situation where instead of selling, you know, an average of say $3,000, now all of a sudden their average transaction is $2,000. So how do you make up for, you know, that third of revenue that was lost? The only possible answer is I must sell a lot more. And that's very, very difficult to do. Very few retailers can turn around and say, okay, I need to double my sales and succeed at it. So those guys are stepping away from it because it's just killing their business. The other type of retailer that we see are retailers that sell against the budget. There are people who walk into a store and, and they say that I'm looking for engagement ring. My budget is, you know, so much. Then it was in the interest of retailers to sell them lab grown because the margins there are huge. So instead of it being, say, it's about 40% for a one carat round for natural, it's 60. Now it's about 65% gross margin for a, a lab-grown diamond. So if I'm selling by budget, the trade-off isn't, do I sell a one carat of this kind of stone or one carat of that kind of stone? The trade-off is, what product do I sell for this budget? And those guys loved it. They loved it because it doesn't matter what happened in terms of prices of lab grown. All they did is sold a bigger stone. But those guys have a different concern. Their concern, and, and I hear it from, from many retailers in the United States, especially those that are on the higher end, their concern is that the perceived value of what they're offering is decreasing. 
even though their income is the same. Their profitability is better. But they're thinking long-term, what's going to happen when somebody walks into the store and does a very, very typical consumer action in the jewelry industry, right? A couple got married 30 years ago. They didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they bought what they could afford. And now that they're ce celebrating their 30th anniversary, they want to replace just the stone. You get a certain, you know, you get an assessment, right? What's the value of the stone? And, and you give the store the stone and you add whatever you want on top of it and you can get a nicer, bigger, prettier stone. With lab-grown, they won't be able to do that. And they're afraid that somewhere down the line, their loyal customers, second, third generation, you know, people will walk in one day and say, this is horrible. I mean, I, my grandmother and my mother told me about all these trade-offs and now I can't, I won't be able to. It's, it's, I mean, my money is gone. And that's their fear. They won't be a luxury retailer anymore. They'll be selling something that is a very low cost component. So what you were seeing here is sort of, I think, very smart long-term thinking. What is going to happen to my business five years down the line? Well, what do you think? I mean, are these fears, do you think their fears will be borne out? Is that how you anticipate the market shaking out that, that people will realize that lab-grown doesn't have, well, enough lasting value or any lasting value for it to be worthwhile? Well, I'll tell you something. When I read your articles, one of the impressions that I, that I think everybody gets is that there's something very fun about jewelry, right? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you spend on a jewelry item, if you got it as a gift, it holds a special value. And that's why we see a lot of people taking, so we said, you know, loose and a, and a semi-mount. A lot of people taking their grandmother's engagement ring and just replacing the stone, right? So they have something that has great sentimental value and they're giving it a twist, taking it into their own lives in a way. And what matters is the context. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is, you know, how you position in the market. For a second month in a row, and this is, this is new, we are seeing a decline in the number of lab-grown units sold. Yeah, it's the first time, is that the first time since this all started? Uh, well, you know, it happened on occasion, a little bit of a dip over there, you know, so, you know, I'm talking about month over month, right? So in January, there's always a decline after December, right? So you can't always you know, read, you know, secret meanings into that. Sometimes it's just a cycle. But if there's a decline in August and then another decline in September, that's odd. Because in August, usually there's an, there's an uptick in sales, in diamond jewelry sales, because of tourism. So if there's a decline in August, which shouldn't happen, and then another decline in September, I, I got to ask myself, what's going to happen in October? If you are a lab-grown person, and that's your business, right? And your product price, you know, for, so you're a wholesaler, you're looking at it in terms of value, but... But if your product is constantly being devalued, its price is constantly being eroded, and this is a new product, right? Because it's been in the market five years, let's be honest. As, as a real product, it's only been in the market for five years. If after five years, it's all, the price is only, being, it's only eroding, and your market share capture is, and your sales are starting to decline, not in value, but in, in volume, then this is a very toxic combination. Now, for years and years and years, I, I, I had two perceptions about the future of lab-grown. I'll start with where I was wrong. One perception was that uh, it will replace the low-cost stones. So instead of, you know, having a bunch of PK goods, right, I1s, I2 goods in the halo, let's just take them out. And natural stones, let's just and throw in, you know, a bunch of, you know, VSs, SIs. It'll look a lot better. It's going to cost me less. You know, it's a great 
it's a smart offering for a jewelry manufacturer to increase their margins a little bit when making, you know, jewelry for, I don't know, Macy's. But I got it wrong for funny reasons, for two funny, two interesting reasons. One, I should have expected, and that is because it's a technologically driven product, it's constantly improving. So now if you were a lab-grown grower, you do not want to make Pika. It's impossible to find Pika goods. You can't find LMs anymore. I have a group of clients that I, I make a wholesale price list. And I'm constantly making it smaller and smaller because there's no M's in the market and there are no L's in the market and there are no I1s, I2s in the market. I mean, they just don't make them anymore because if that's the area where you're active as a grower, you're out of the game. You're not keeping up with the times. Everybody's now making VSs and VVSs. Uh, and if you're an HPHT, <laughs> you make it at a lower cost than the CVD guys and you come up with very, very nice goods beautiful items. So that's where I got it wrong, right? So it's not the center, it's not the side stones, it's the center stones now. But the other thing that I did get right, and, and it's still yet to really fully happen, was that when clients of mine in, in the lab-grown area asked me, what do I think they should do? I said, you need to resign to the understanding that you're creating a component. You're not in the diamond business, you're in the lab-grown business. And as such, you will have to detach yourself from saying, at some point in the future, from saying it's the same but different. It's not the same, not because it's the same on a scientific basis. It's not the same because the whole selling proposition of a natural diamond is based on the fact that it's natural, right? A diamond is forever. Why is it forever? Not because it's indestructible. It's forever because it's been around for hundreds of millions to several billions of years. And that is why it's forever. It's been around for all these years and it's a symbol of our enduring love, right? That's You complete that thought in your mind. Oh, this is very symbolic of my love. The, the lab-grown industry can't say, oh, we're just the same. But by the way, we were pounded out at a factory in China, you know, three weeks ago. It's just, you know, you need your own story. I mean, you need to detach yourself from the natural. And one way of doing this is by not promoting a diamond, but by promoting a jewelry item. And the example I always gave was Swarovski. Nobody buys Swarovski for their crystals. They're buying it for their branding, for their workmanship, for the constant change in designs, for their great designs. You know, nobody asks themselves if those crystals are really diamonds. And I guess I wonder where all this ends up in terms of your outlook for this holiday. I mean, are people, I guess there are other factors at play here in terms of the economy and, and so on, and, and whether or not people are going for lab-grown or natural, but what's your take on how this holiday will shape up in relation to 22? Down? <laughs> so, okay, so let's put this in perspective. 21, 22 were exceptionally good years for the diamond industry. We had the same in 2009, 10, 11. And this is, you know, one of those once in every 15 years sort of occurrence because there was this big, large, you know, international thing, right? 9, 11 was one thing, a financial crisis, another thing, crisis is another thing, a pandemic is a third thing, but all of them have something in common. And that is everybody goes, ah! It's like, okay, 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 I love her so much. Why am I just sitting on my ass and not buying her that time? Well, okay, I'll propose and they run out and they get married, right? That's always what happens. So we're not comparing ourselves to a normal year. We need to compare it to 2019. We're going to be around 2019, maybe a little bit below that. So I think everybody understands that they this is a cyclical thing. It's going to be a little bit down and it's going to improve 
down the line. In the meantime, you know, let's cut the access spending, um, not hire like crazy. I think that's where it's going to go. I think we can live with 2019. That seems like a reasonable place to land. Here's the thing about 2019. 2019 was not a very good year up until December. In the last two weeks of December, sales went through the roof. I mean, all of the, you know, everybody that was moaning about a horrible year fixed it in the last two weeks of the year. Everybody. Um, well, Ivan, thank you for joining us, especially at such a at such a difficult time. We really appreciate your your reports and and from the trenches, as it were. And thank you again for squeezing us in. Yeah, stay, stay safe and uh, wish the best to everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you when it, you should get a podcast. Everyone else says it. <laughs> and join the crowd. No, I don't want to compete with you guys. You guys are doing a very very good job. So thank you for having me. Diamonds from the trenches, maybe a good name for a for a podcast. <laughs> There you go. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.